Welcome fellow traveller to the Tent Talks podcast where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social and political imagination. My name is Stephen, and this is the Tent Talks podcast. Today we're going to start a new series of four episodes looking at the theme of white tears. I'm a teacher and a speaker, and I spend a lot of time talking to lots of different audiences about politics and theology. And in the course of my travels, I find that I often start to cry when I'm talking about certain topics. It just so happens that I have a recording of one of these times. So before we get into too much detail about the theme of this series, I want you to have a listen to this clip and see what you think. Oh, and before we continue further, I should give a trigger warning here. I don't think there's going to be any language issues for the next four episodes. But because we are talking about the history and development of Christendom, We also will be talking about slavery, racism, genocide, and sexual violence. I'm sorry that that is the case, that talking about the history of Christianity also necessarily means talking about these things. But there you go. If you're going to reckon with the story of Christian civilization, you also have to reckon with what has been done in the name of Christian civilization all around the world. And it's part of what I want you to reckon with as we go into this series now. There isn't a single country on earth that is not founded on genocide, rape, murder, acquisition of land. Like I'm, I'm today. It's, it's Canada Day today, and so I'm. Oh, I'm not cele- I'm not celebrating it, but like it's. You know, it's Canada Day and then all these patriotic Canadians. Like, there isn't a single scrap of land that hasn't been taken from another person in Canada, right? Any white person is living on land. And I realized, I, I realized this today and I went and, and had a look at, there's a website, it's really cool, there's a website you can find. Uh, I forget what it's called, native, native-land, native-land it's called. And you just type in your postcode or your town that you grew up in and it will tell you which native groups used to own that land or be in charge of it. Wow. And I have discovered that I grew up on Blackfoot territory. You know? I just discovered that. And I'm like, well, I don't know what to do with that. I I didn't steal that land myself personally, but I grew up on land that was stolen. And I just did. And that's part of my truth. Beneficiary of. I'm a beneficiary of stolen land. Yeah. And 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 right now Canada's going through huge I'm getting a bit teary. Um you got you got to look at what happened to <laughs> this is for I didn't know I was going to get teary yeah you know go and look at what happened to residential schools that the church used to run for the government you know and and 
all these native children killed or died and then put into mass graves and you know it's just genocide like this is why christianity why would you pledge allegiance to a church why would you pledge allegiance to a country built on the genocide of children just go and research it this is what's happening they're just discovering it now you know 715 unmarked graves were discovered in british columbia and another 200 or something saskatchewan that is what every country does you know and that's canada which everybody is the most boring kind nice nation in the world it's built on the blood of murdered children and there's not a single nation there's not a single flag that you could look at that is doesn't have a similar story right why are you pledging allegiance to that thing so what did you think how did that make you feel how did you respond to the tears on that recording now as you may have gathered i'm a white guy and i care about the topics and the subjects that i'm talking about but i also care about what happens when I talk about them, and I care about the way that white people respond to injustice. And as well as looking at the injustices themselves, I've also started to look at how do we respond to these things, and what does it mean? And this isn't the only time that I've cried in public, or while talking about topics like this that are close to my heart. But one observation I've made is that After I do this, or after this happens to me, I get rewarded for it. I'll get emails, or I'll have people coming up to me afterwards, talking to me as if I was brave, or as if I'd done something good by crying. Maybe when you heard that clip, you started to cry. Maybe you're a white person who also feels the weight of injustice and the gap between what you know to be right, and how our lives are actually constructed. But maybe you're a brown person, or a black person, and maybe my white tears didn't mean the same to you as it means to white people. And it's my awareness of the different ways that tears are received It's my awareness of, as I said, the reward that I sometimes feel for crying. It's the awareness that white tears is often talked about in black and brown audiences as something to be suspicious of, of something that has made matters worse, perhaps is just relieving white liberal guilt without actually leading to real action. Perhaps these are the white tears of someone whose toys have been taken away and they're frustrated and angry. Or more lethally, white tears are often weaponized, used to call down the force of law enforcement or vigilante groups upon black and brown bodies, all because a white person cried and must be defended. So as I became more and more aware of the complicated role that white tears play in matters of justice and injustice. I thought this would be a good topic for a deep dive. This isn't about me. I'm not going to be popping up very often in the next few episodes. But what I am doing is seeking out different people whose perspective 
I value and admire. Some of these people are friends of mine and I've asked them frankly to tell me what they honestly think about crying and white crying. Some of them are experts who've written books or who work in civil society or other aspects of public life, who I've sought for their expertise and their valued judgment on what they think is going on. I talk to academics, I've talked to medical professionals, I'm talking to all sorts of different people who are helping us think more clearly and explore in a more rounded fashion this phenomenon of white tears. We're not going to reach any firm conclusions here. Not everyone who speaks on these podcasts is speaking with the same voice. Not everyone thinks the same about all of these topics. And it wasn't my intent to join up every loose end and make sure everything forms a neat story. Instead, I'm trying to open up the space to think about something that we all experience, but perhaps haven't examined for very long. I hope you find this podcast series to be something of use, something of interest, and it might even be the beginning of justice in the corner of the world that you have inherited and are now responsible for. Ujuniji, the Marazig, Terry Wildman, and Dishnakaz. What I said in Ojibwe is hello, my friends who share this life together with me. My name is Terry Wildman. I was born and raised in Michigan. My ancestry includes Ojibwe from Ontario, Canada, Yaqui from Sonora, Mexico, as well as English, German, and Spaniard. I'm married to Darlene Wildman. I have five children, eight grandchildren, and three great grandchildren. My wife and I currently live in Maricopa, Arizona, on the traditional lands of the Tana Otham and the Pima. I am the lead translator and the project manager for the First Nation version. Today, I'm actually sitting in Michigan, Grand Rapids, Michigan, in the traditional lands of the three fires, the Ojibwe, the Odawa, and the Batawatomi. It's good to be here today. The, the phrase white tears reminds me of some things I've seen. I've seen a lot of people as we share the story of what's happened to our native people here in Turtle Island, North America. I have seen people uh, tear up. I've actually seen people weep quite uh, passionately. Um, and uh, I remember a, a friend of mine, Richard Twist, many know him from uh, uh, years ago. And Richard said that there was this one lady, she was, she would, she um, came and she was weeping and weeping and weeping and, and she would follow him around and just weep and say, what should I do? What should I do? What should I do? And finally he turned around. And he says, well, stop crying for one thing. He says, you know, if you want to really do something, then there's ways to get involved. There's ways to participate. There's ways to do things. And he says, guilt doesn't produce anything. Tears don't produce anything unless, unless it moves you to compassion, to real compassion and, and real uh, desire to say, what can I do as an individual or, or as the head of a corporation or as whatever position in life you have, what can I do to actually bring about real change or at least 
to open up conversations and to teach others what I'm learning and what I'm feeling so deeply. Looking at what real compassion, real change is, uh, I can only speak from my own experience. My wife and I traveled for 10 years all across Turtle Island, and we visited lots of churches. Many churches were so excited to have us come in. And we would come in and we would share our music. We'd, we'd share a little bit about what's happened with our Native people. And there would be such a like, oh, we're going to get involved. We're going to see change comes. We're going to, you know, do all this. And then later, other things come in. It just kind of reminds me of the parable when Jesus talked about the good seeds and the different kinds of ground that the seeds planted in and how that it doesn't produce because of different things happening. And in so many churches who initially were so wide open, it's the busyness of ministry. It's the other things that are pressing in on whatever uh, their church is going through or the parking lot or a new parking lot or whatever it is. Um, And so in those situations, it felt so genuine in the beginning, but I really questioned how genuine was it? Did, Did it move people enough that they would actually sacrifice something for this? Okay, and so the idea of sacrifice is a tough one. You know, because churches have priorities and churches prioritize their budgets and their time and their energy in different ways. And somehow the native thing, which was so up front there, kind of moves down on the, to the bottom of the list. And and a lot of churches haven't followed through. There's been a few who have, and I'm so happy for those, but others haven't followed through. So Part of me just wonders if it's not so much that the tears are fake or the or the the, the compassion isn't genuine. It's is the compassion uh, deep enough, I guess. Um, you know, it, it, it does show up. It felt real when people were just hugging me and and saying that they want to be involved. They want to see change. And oh, my gosh, I never knew all these things that happened. Thank you for telling me. You know, and, and again, too, uh, we, we have a lot of Native ministries that are trying to uh, educate people. Um, and um, that's part of what Darlene and I were doing. And so we would ask these churches, support a Native ministry who's getting this word out. And for us, we didn't see the support come uh, very often. Sometimes there would be a nice offering while we were there. But ongoing, consistent investment uh, it was a hard thing for us to see, and we didn't see it very often. One of the, I told you, one of the sort of instigating factors for my interest in this whole idea was when I was affected emotionally by by the residential schools news that was coming out. This was particularly the, in Saskatchewan, but I know it's all over North America. Has has the residential school issue, has that led to any change? Have you seen anything? Has that captured the imagination of the Christian churches at all that, that you've seen? Well, in my experience, I saw some initial things that happened, but in terms of ongoing discussion um, uh, or, or even a desire to dig deeper and find out what's happening here in America. And even with the, uh, with the Pope's apology, that stirred up a lot of things. Um, but again, um, there's been a mixed, uh, mixed response to that. 
And uh, I even got interviewed by Christianity Today uh, about the Pope's apology. Really, uh, almost was like, uh, can you interview in the next half hour? <laughs> and and so I did, and they they uh, uh, put my voice in with many other voices. But I guess I haven't seen a lot. Deb Halland is doing, uh, she's, uh, I think, in the Department of the Interior. She's Native American, and she is raising awareness, you know, but here's here's part of the problem. Um, boy, I don't, I hate getting political. You can't help it, you know? Uh, so you've got this whole issue of, of uh, the boarding schools and the, the, students who died in those schools and their bodies buried on in burial grounds. And we've had some in the United States. There's been some awareness of that. And there's been some bodies returned and, uh, and things to their, to their proper places. Um, but with this whole mysterious fear of something called CRT, okay, there's this mysterious fear out there that you can't really let people know what, actually happen because you might I guess you might make them feel bad or something like that it might make you cry and so because of that it seems like that suppresses that whole thing it kind of puts a little fear-based thing in there and then next thing you know if you do talk about this thing now you're political and now you're you're going with this whatever this CRT is you know and I've done some research on it and I uh, it's some kind of legal term that was used by lawyers, not anything to do with what's happening in our schools. But it, but so so the political atmosphere is affecting all this, in my opinion. It's affecting how we respond to real issues. You know, Native people today in America are still Native people are crying Native people are weeping, and they have been, and theirs are the tears that are being ignored. White tears don't mean as much to me as the Native tears, but I'm glad to see them because it does mean there's some kind of compassion there. There's some, something there that can be, uh, you know, that, that maybe Creator or God can can. Um, go a little deeper into and move us into into real situations where we can make a difference. How do we do it? Well, pr- pretty much as individuals, it's pretty tough. So we have to enter into community. We have to join with others who are like-minded. And then we need to, you know, be in our communities. It's one thing to worry about the you know, if you live in Michigan, you know, think about Michigan natives. Think about the people right here in Grand Rapids. We have a huge native community. The, th- the three fires are here in Grand Rapids. And uh, last Sunday, I, I was at a church and and um, uh, there was a, a native lady who came to the church. And she was so, so glad that somebody actually got up front and talked about the boarding school in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, and the effect that's had on our Native people. She says, nobody ever talks about that in the churches down here. And so, you know, sometimes you just plant, to me, I just feel like, well, I got to keep kind of digging the ground and trying to find a place where seeds can actually take root, produce some 30, 60, 100 fold, I don't know, you know, 
return on on this idea that something went bad in the past and the church was involved in it. And now what can we do to to fix that? You know, what can we do? We're not going to fix it. Let's throw on a word. I don't like the word fix. What can we do to see healing come again, to see a restoration come? Um, You know, oftentimes people uh, have come to me and they, you know, they'll look at me in the face. I'm some guy or he'll say, well, I didn't do this to him. I didn't do it. Why should, why should I take any responsibility for that? And so I just tell him a parable, one that Jesus told. Okay. He told a parable about somebody called that we call a good Samaritan. All right. And this, and, and in this story, uh, you've got the Jewish people and you've got the Samaritans in the story. Now, they're not friends with each other. Uh, the Jewish people despise Samaritans. Samaritans often despise the Jewish people. You know, um, they wouldn't even like to go by each other. So you got this story, and Jesus tells about a priest, right? And he sees a guy laying on the side of the road, beaten and bloodied, right? And he's beaten and bloodied. And what does the priest do? The priest ignores him and goes around him. The Levite that followed the priest, well, he just does whatever the priest does. And that's our problem. We got all these people following what the leaders are doing, and the leaders aren't doing the right thing. Okay? So what happened is uh, finally the Samaritan comes along, and the Samaritan is the one who goes and helps this person. Now, maybe the priest said, I didn't do this to them. Maybe the Levi said, I, I'm not responsible for this. I didn't do this to them. Well, I can tell you the Samaritan didn't do it either. And the point wasn't whether you did it or not to them. The point was there's somebody bleeding on the side of the road that needs help. And do you have enough compassion to reach out to them? So that's a story I often tell. It's not about guilt. It's about compassion. Will you, will you love the way the creator loves and reach out to someone who's hurting. And and our Native people have been beaten and bloodied and laying on the side of the road for generations now, and we need some people that have enough compassion to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to sacrifice some of my money, some of my goods, some of my resources to enter into helping this situation, just like the Samaritan did. White tears are the are a good beginning, you know, it but again, it's it's got to go beyond that point. That's the starting. Some people feel like, I cried, that's enough. You know, I've done my thing. Uh, I feel bad for them. Well, it, 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 that's good. Now, go the next step. What do you do when people feel bad? You, uh, the scripture, you comfort the, the ones that need comforting. You do what uh, it says in uh, in the Beatitudes. You talk about those those who mourn will be comforted. Well, who's going to comfort them? God's going to call his people to comfort the ones who mourn. God's going to call his people to do those kinds of things that need to be done uh, and to be the peacemakers, to be the reconcilers, to be the healers and all those kinds of things. So I'm wondering if in your experience of talking to so many different groups of people, is there a common theme or are are there the same kinds of ideas that keep coming up again and again, which you've noticed that are barriers to people really opening themselves up? That, that stop white audiences from from doing anything about what they've just heard? Well, as I look at the, the kind of barriers that 
prevent people from wanting to hear and learn more. I, I guess the, the greatest barrier is just this, this sense of, I went to church. I love my church. I, 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 you know, people love their church. They love all the wonderful things they see their church doing and things like that. And then someone like me comes along and I tell them that their church in the past did all these terrible things, got involved with the government on this and that. And, and they've never in, in all the generations following your, your denomination or your church has never done anything about this. You've never made any kind of effort to see healing or reconciliation or even acknowledgement come. And so I think people just don't want to know that because it makes them feel bad. And that, that bad feeling, uh, sometimes there's a feeling of helplessness. There are people sometimes, I, when we go to churches and speak, I might reach a, two or three people that really want to do something. But then later they contact me and they get frustrated because their church isn't going along with them, you know, and isn't, isn't following through. A lot of times when my wife and I would go to churches and we would, we would say, you know, uh, how does your church get involved in seeing healing and reconciliation come? I said, well, it might start with two or three people. It might start with a group of two or three who just have a heart for this. And pastor, you need to really um, bless this group this, and, 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 and empower this group of people to really do some things and to maybe regularly these people would make relational contacts and do things, uh, go to a powwow, and then they would c- come back and report to the church. What, what's been done. And, and then pretty soon you have this feeling that, that the church is, is getting involved. Maybe that group grows larger because other people think, wow, that sounds like that was something going to that powwow and seeing these things happen and, and learning this. And then I think I'd like to go next time. But, but I think probably the greatest barrier is this, just the sense that um, I don't want to feel bad about my church. I don't want to feel bad about my myself. I, I, I don't know how to fix this. It's too big to fix. Therefore, why I can't spend time worrying about it. Okay, so hi, I'm Shay Martins-Allen. Um, I am a black Londoner. I've lived in London all my life. Um, I will never live anywhere else. <laughs> and I am a musician. I'm a singer. And I also run a tutoring company and I'm super interested in politics. So I did a politics degree at SOAS, which is probably you know, probably the most, London is already very diverse, but SOAS is probably the most diverse place within London. Okay, so the phrase white tears, the way that it makes me feel, I'm actually quite contradicted about that phrase because part of me says tears are tears. Tears are an emotional response, regardless of what the color of your skin is. Um, so part of me says, you know, why are we even having this conversation? And then the other part of me says, well, actually, historically, in terms of emotion, I know that when black females are emotional in certain circumstances, and I'm one of them, we're perhaps not taken as seriously or taken too seriously um, in certain contexts compared to my white female counterparts. So I think for me, probably the earliest experience of that would be um, maybe at school, because I was at a school that was all white. I was the only black person in my school. 
and you know if I I was seen as you know black women are seen as quite tough quite strong so if you do cry well some teachers or some people might think oh god this is really really bad because you know Shay's crying right because she's normally pretty tough or you you're maybe more likely to just get you know ignored you know suck it up compared to like your white counterparts where their tears will automatically be taken seriously because it's just like okay you're crying let's talk about it so I know there is that element in there and then the other thing about white tears is I guess this this link with guilt so I know a lot of black people slash white people have a problem with sort of guilty tears as in white people crying because they feel guilty about something guilt as an emotion is quite complex that i think that's the crux of the issue so if you're feeling guilty because of something you personally have done wrong that's different if you're feeling guilty about something that one of your ancestors did a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago slightly more difficult um, (laughs) in terms of the way that's framed so i think white tears is quite complex normally i am I don't really like racially um, putting, putting like a racial label on something like tears. I, I'm not, that's not my general preference, mm. but I can't deny that there is a dynamic and definitely historically there has been a dynamic between white people showing emotion and it just being seen normal as normal uh, and black people showing emotion and somehow it being interpreted as abnormal. That I can't deny, but I think that applies to quite a few things actually, not just tears probably quite a few emotions anger just anger that kind of thing as well um also applies to that uh, so it's it's complicated i think the best example for me is when i did some research on anti- antenatal care for black women compared to antenatal care care for white women this topic came up and i was actually interviewed about it for bbc radio 4 about whether i felt that my care as a black woman when I gave birth was did I feel like it was under par because the statistics show that generally we're not treated very well I personally had a very good experience when I gave birth to my daughter NHS was fantastic no issue but I actually don't know how much of that was to do with the fact that I have a white husband and he was sitting there the whole time so I can't, so I, I'm really fascinated by that as to whether I would have been treated any differently but in terms of your question about the tears and the reason why I bring up that example is because I was challenged by a lady who was at one of the antenatal classes and she looked at me and she said oh you know when you give birth don't worry because you know black women are tough and you know you guys are kind of built to kind of give birth and they had the same weird sort of stereotypes about Polish women as well they had that Polish women black women really tough Whereas they felt that East Asian women were really weak and, you know, just didn't have the same stamina. Now, those stereotypes are not good for any of those women, by the way. But specifically talking about black women, the issue there was that it was getting translated into the birthing room as, you know, if a black woman was saying, no, I really need the drugs, seriously in pain, I need this epidural, I need this, they were sort of being ignored because of the type of, you're really tough, you guys, you're built to have babies, you know, in Africa, they're all having babies with none of this medical intervention, you can just pop them out, when actually, there's quite a lot, just like any other individuals, not all black women are going to be like that, that's where I think it's really problematic, because it's mainly to do with stereotyping, and that also 
comes into my point of why I don't really like to put one race on it because that same stereotyping is very bad for East Asian women as well. Just mm-hmm. calling them kind of weak and saying they can't have birth, they can't give birth means they're going to be treated in a certain way. So it's going to be midwife mm-hmm. looking at Chinese women going, oh gosh, she's going to need lots of help. That is not the way forward. Each person should be treated as an individual, regardless of the color of your skin, because I don't, but they don't know how you're going to respond in in birth. And they should be going right. This is this patient. This is their history. Let's go on that basis, not on some strange stereotypes based on racial features. Very odd. In that context, you know, white women do get it's felt that they essentially are. If they ask for help, they need help. If they don't ask yeah. for help, they don't need help. Yeah. And I'm like, everyone should be like that. <laughs> So what yeah. happens when two people re- end up representing so, generations of problems uh, and then they meet face to face and one of them starts crying? Like, what, what, how do you respond to that? It's a really good question. So it, that hasn't happened to me yet where someone started crying when, I, when we've talked about these things. But it has happened where, you know, the person's clearly felt very distressed and guilty. And I know the type of person you're talking about, very liberal, going, oh, you know, we were so terrible. This sort of thing. So weirdly this is where i have a little bit of sympathy with the right wing uh black people or ethnic minorities because i can see what they're saying in terms of that don't treat me like a victim i am not suffering i'm fine and i'm doing very well okay and they want to be seen as people who are doing very well so when you start sobbing and going oh this is terrible and treating like they get really annoyed a little bit like you know disabled communities whole thing about being you know you're ableist and you're it's actually your problem with the way that your thing is disabled because it's just the way society is structured right at the same time i do think look there needs to be some recognition that the things that went on were bad and i if someone feels emotional about that i felt very emotional for example when i went to watch a play about uh indian independence and how a lot of those people were, you know, whipped, beaten, tortured by British colonial officers when they want to be independent. Now, because it's not really part of my history, Indian independence, me personally, and I was a bit shocked, to be honest, I didn't, I hadn't really been taught that at school, that there were certain colonial officers who were sort of known for their, their torturous tricks, and they were particularly vicious. I felt sad. I don't think I would have cried in front of an Indian friend and gone oh god you know what you guys were was so terrible I don't think that would have been appropriate but I think I could have acknowledged and said yeah that was really crap wasn't it and you know that's something that should be taught more and I think people should know happened and that Mm. that's what for me that people should know that's what British white colonial officers were also capable of very dark forms of torture I think that's very sanitized in this culture I don't think you ask the average person on the street did they think that British colonial officers torture people in that way? They'd say, no, no what are you talking about? That's the problem for me. So I want acknowledgement to know, but the, the, the crying thing, uh, I mean, if it, it, it depends on the context. I would give the person the benefit of the doubt. I think a lot of times it's a lot of white tears are treated as if it's the end of the story. It's like, oh, we got you to cry. Great job done and and the white person feels oh something happened to me i'm changed now because i cried when actually it's probably more like should be the beginning of their story (laughs) yeah it's normally because they found something out they didn't know about and as a black person you know who has i have a nigerian parent i have a Ghanaian parent 
I kind of was exposed, you know, I got taken to Nigeria and Ghana when I was about seven years old. So I got confronted with extreme poverty and really difficult things that were going on quite early on. And I think it hardens you a bit, to be honest. So it's not a shock, therefore, if someone tells me a historical story about how terrible things were. Whereas I think for some white people, not yeah. all, or they maybe haven't been exposed to quite our stuff. Because I see that with my dad is one step further because he grew up in Nigeria. He, you know, poverty, he's like, yeah, poverty's bad. But he's like, I mean, that's literally what we saw every day. People who yeah. were like going on the streets trying to find one meal a day. It's not hitting him in the same way as someone who has never had their electricity turned off. I mean, he went for weeks with no electricity. So when you say power cut, he's like, okay, fine. Right, it's life. It just doesn't hit in the same way. Not when you come from those backgrounds. My name is Galibe Omanaka. I'm originally, well, I was born in England. I grew up in Manchester in England. I was born to Nigerian parents, but I've been living in California and read in California for 11 years now. So the first memory I have of white tears, and specifically when I remember deciding not to pay much attention to them or not put much weight, not put much weight on them actually, was in 2016. Um, I'd been aware of it for a while, but at this particular moment in time, I was in a prayer meeting about the 2016 election. And all of a sudden, one of the people in the room started praying and it was less praying and more verbally processing what would happen if president if donald trump didn't become president and as this person continued to pray tears started to stroll down stream down their face and they got more and more emotional and i don't know what it was exactly about that moment but I'd always taken tears to mean that someone felt something deeply and that I'd always seen tears as a, as a sign of authenticity, shall we say. But in that moment, I, I looked to this white woman who was crying and I thought, I can't trust these people's tears again. I can't trust that their tears have taken into account my experience or my perspective. I tend to view white tears as entirely self-centered and self-centered in a way that looks to preserve hierarchy, status, and power. If there's a a group in the US who I would say has the biggest quote-unquote victim mindset, and I use that tongue-in-cheek because I've heard a lot of people say that African-Americans or minorities have victim mindsets. Um, But if there was a group that I would say had the biggest victim mindset, it would be conservative white evangelicals. And for whatever reason, we can can talk at length about how they've come to this conclusion. For whatever reason, they saw Donald Trump as the person who was going to go into the White House on their behalf, stand up on behalf of their interests, be mean to the people who they didn't like, and bring the laws that they wanted into fruition. From their perspective, that's quite a, you know, that's quite a, a tantalizing opportunity, um, especially when you tie your faith towards that and see it as an outworking of the God who created everything. <laughs> and so to be in a space where you think that God is actively working on your behalf 
um, even if you haven't thought about the broader implications of your own thought processes, to have that be at risk or in doubt in some way, that could be quite terrifying. And so that's what I, that's what I think she, she was crying about. George, when George Floyd got murdered on camera, I can't tell you how many inbox messages I got from people on various social media platforms saying like, what's happening? I don't know what to think. This, that and the other. And people meant well by it. They weren't, um, there are people who I really, you know, there are a lot of people who I still really like who I've spoken to since then. But in that particular moment and with that particular situation, I couldn't bring myself to respond to to any of them. Because it was, you know, it was it was interesting because this was something that I've been so clearly aware of since before I even moved to the to the US. And there'd been incidences like this that had happened since I'd been in the US. And then it took someone being having their neck kneeled on for eight minutes and 46 seconds or whatever for, you know, for the for the shoot for the for the penny to drop. And now all of a sudden I was supposed to fix everyone's problems and tell them how to navigate it and how to feel about themselves. And so, yeah, that, that was a lot. Afterwards, people would ask the question, hey, do you think things are going to change now? And if anything, the, uh, generally speaking, I'm a pretty optimistic person, but I've become really aware of the fact that change is difficult. When it comes to the way in which the, the, you know, the systems of power treat historically disenfranchised people how <laughs> when it comes to the way in which you when when it comes to how these people have to navigate day-to-day life the things they have to think about the obstacles they have to overcome you know that's not even taking into account the fact that much of the infrastructure that gave birth to this was written into into the constitution it's been codified in law in in, in a number of ways and now all of a sudden because of one event you're asking, hey, do you think things are going to change? My answer was always like, no, of course not. <laughs> and so, yeah, I could, I could feel that longing for, for me to say, actually, no, everything's going to be okay. People, you know, people are protesting, people are getting angry, it's being talked about internationally, things are going to be okay. But honestly, no, I, I didn't think things were going to change. And now we're in the middle of, back, of a backlash where, Whenever you try and teach an elementary school about race or slavery, you suddenly you're suddenly engaging in critical race theory. You know, we're we're in the middle of the backlash, and it's been two years since George Floyd was killed. And I do think that there are some people's eyes who've been permanently open to to, to realities that they were previously unaware of. I mean, going back to critical race theory, I remember someone was getting really angry at critical race theory, talking about how. It teaches victimhood, how we're teaching what young white kids to hate themselves, this, that, and the other. And I just asked the question, what is critical race theory? And the answer they gave was long-winded, it was meand- long-winded, it was meandering. It was not totally coherent in, at a lot of times, and it had nothing to do with critical race theory. And so I asked again, like, but what actually is critical race theory? Round two, same thing. And when I'd point out, I said, that is not what critical race theory is. They got offended by that. And, you know, I just, I made the point. I was like, if someone asked me to describe what an elbow is and I start describing a shoulder, if they tell me that I'm not describing an elbow, I can't be upset with them because I'm describing a shoulder type thing. 
And so the way that the way that all these people who don't know what critical race theory is, a lot of these people are legislators as well. Ted Cruz doesn't know what critical race theory is. Ron DeSantis doesn't know what critical race theory is. Cindy Hyde-Smith doesn't know what critical race theory is. So the, the, way that I've, the way that fear is being weaponized to push through a legislative, legislative agenda in order that we can't even have honest conversations about race, in that regard, I'd say, yes, things are definitely worse. And it all, it all it basically all revolves around not making white children feel uncomfortable when they learn about history. In Tennessee, there was a, there was a book about the Holocaust that got banned because, um, because of some of the language it used. There have been a lot of books about, you know, in Texas, I think it's, I think it's illegal now to speak about any subject without presenting the other side of the subject as pertains to race. And so that, again, going back to the Holocaust, that essentially means that if you want to talk about the Third Reich systematically killing six million Jews as a, as, you know, as some sort of solution to the world's ills, you then have to put the other side of the argument forward so as to keep things balanced, which is insane. Could you imagine, you know, could you imagine saying that to someone in 2017, in 2012, in 2007? So with that regard, there is, there is, fear is just being ratcheted up and it's, it's being it's being used by people who are just looking to consolidate their positions of power it's being used by religious leaders in some respects it's being used by politicians all because they're afraid of losing power or they've seen a pathway to maintain power for a long time and they're taking advantage of it Have I had to negotiate white fragility in my own relationships? I would say so, yes. Honestly, a lot of the a lot of the time for me it's looked like not being able to be as honest as I'd like to be, frankly. Just being aware of where I am, being aware of the fact that I'm you know, outnumbered, being aware of the fact that, you know, maybe I don't actually have the time or energy to go into this at length in a way that would actually teach you something a lot of the time it means that I just have to I just don't get to be as honest as I would like to be which is which is actually really sad as I'm hearing myself say that I'm like oh wow that that is a really sad place to be but it is honestly true Thanks to Terry Wildman, Shay Martins-Allen, and Galibe Omanaka for sharing their time with us. Join us next week for the next installment in our exploration of White Tears. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com. Tent Theology.